Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgivingness, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. So on verses 14 and 15, um, as you look at your notes, is where we are picking it up today. So again, it reads, uh, and above all else, Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So, when he says, and above all, we were talking before about the other attributes or the other characteristics that we are to uh, pursue as Christians. You know, we're to, we're to live those things out. Um, you know, being kind and, and all the things that he's talked about. But he wants them to understand that the overarching, or the overarching, I guess, attitude that we are to adopt is to make sure that we're motivated by love. That would be love for God, and that would be love for others. And love is that which describes all those other attributes and which, I guess you would say, it tempers um, our attitude, makes sure that we have the right attitude, uh, towards others in all of these ways, regardless of the kinds of situations uh, that we find ourselves in. So it's kind of like an overcoat, um, if you, you know, because before he said to put on you know, thankfulness and kindness, or whatever, and just, the idea is putting on clothes, and so with that you put on this overcoat, uh, which kind of uh, binds us all together, kind of brings everything together like a belt or a girdle. As we mentioned before, agape love is, is again, is a love that is exercised <clears throat> and known because of its commitment. So it's not an emotion. There may be emotions with it, but that's not what it is. Um, remember that emotions are fickle and emotions change. Uh, you may hear people say, well, when I got married, I really loved her or him, but after a while, um, I find myself no longer loving that person. Well, they have a, they have a complete misunderstanding of what, what we would call true love. So true love is supposed to be something that's much stronger than just the way that we feel. feel. Um, and because many individuals, in general, live their life by the way they feel, that is how they get themselves in trouble when they make bad decisions or there's bad judgment. Uh, whether it's in relationships or really anything in life. Um, you know, there's an, we've, I'm sure you've heard stories of individuals who have lost their temper at work and so they really want to get back at their boss so they quit and then you realize uh oh <laughs> I don't have a job and I got to pay rent in two weeks <laughs> you know that kind of thing uh, so but if you live so and if you get in the habit of living by your emotions then those things can happen really very rapidly so again we're not we're not, no one is against emotions the idea is not for us to be stoic uh, but it's this characteristic that God uh, first of all, manifest in the way that he loves us so that we then manifest that kind of love to others. And it, and it can uh, be 
a decision of the will. I know that sounds very unromantic, um, but that's not a bad thing. You know, it's not about always this romance stuff. Uh, in fact, when a man and woman get married, it's great to have feelings for each other. That would be normal, and you would want that, but you want more than that. Um, that's why in the vows, it does say for better or for worse. If we only married based on our emotion, then you would not be saying that. Because the moment it gets bad, you're out of there. And you're looking for somebody else. Um, and in most marriages, probably in all marriages, you know, you're going to have disagreements. And sometimes you're going to have maybe some very strong disagreements. I mean, it's two completely different people uh, coming together to live a life together. And remember that it's two sinners. And now you, hopefully you're saved, so you're, you're a sinner who's been redeemed. But we're still growing as individuals. And so we all have our weaknesses. Uh, we all have our sinful patterns, sinful thoughts, sinful ways of doing things. We're in the process of becoming more like Christ. And so we're going to hit some bumps along the way. Um, and that is why, and it's true, it's, it's not a... Some individuals who don't really understand the nature of life uh, think that there's something wrong with the statement. But I think I can say comfortably that at least... 95% of all marital problems are spiritual. And normally what that means is someone, uh, one of the two or both normally, uh, to wonder if they're not growing in the Lord and they're not, they're not living in obedience to what Scripture says. Because if we are, again, it doesn't mean we're not going to have disagreements, but the way we disagree, the way we figure things out is going to be very different. Um, so when we get to the point to where the marriage is falling apart, and there's bitterness, and there's complaining, and there's, you know, this disdain for the other person, and there's, you know, uh, the desire to get them back, or whatever it happens to be. All of that comes as a result of individuals not walking with the Lord. So now, so we're not saying that all those problems are spiritual as an oversimplification. That's not saying that there's not very real character flaws with the individual, because there may be. But the bottom line is the way that we overcome those things, both the individual who may who may have the flaw, um, and the other individual who has to put up with the flaw, both need to continue to grow as believers. If you do that, you're going to be able to overcome those things. Um, it never means, you know, because we want, we want to make sure we deal with reality, it never means that, that one individual who may have certain flaws will necessarily be completely rid of them, whatever they are. Right? That, you know, if you think, you know, some people think, well, I waited, and the Lord just didn't change them. Like some, now it's God's fault um, that somehow that person didn't change enough. Well, maybe what it was is God only intended to change them to a certain degree and expected you to grow in your patience and understanding and kindness and all the rest. Um, so there's always a whole lot that goes into that. Um, and so we just want to make sure we don't oversimplify it and just say, oh, yeah, it's just spiritual. And never deal with the details. Uh, but recognize that it's a very real thing, which means we all have hope uh, that these relationships can continue to grow and they can be good. And, and God wants them to be good. Uh, and even when it comes to uh, even second marriages, you know, sometimes people say, you know, the divorce rate for second marriages is higher than it is uh, with the first marriage. Um, and some of that's because people bring, because it's just the fact of life, baggage into that marriage. But that doesn't mean you don't have hope for a great marriage. You absolutely can. You know, it's because the Lord um, continues to change us and mature us, and that that next relation we try can be fabulous. It really can be. Um, it doesn't always have to be, 
you know, well, you know, cause I even heard a guy say this once I was in Starbucks and I heard this guy over talking to his friend, I guess. And this is what he said, and I felt really bad for his wife. Thank goodness she wasn't there. He said, well, I guess for a second marriage, it's not bad. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, what an approach to life, you know? <laughs> just like, that is just not good, uh, to say the least. So we just want to make sure that, that we recognize that Christ really does have a lot to do with our practical day-to-day living. Everything to do with it. And again, remember that all these things that are being said, again, are in the context or are connected to this idea of the union we have with Christ or this relationship that we have with Christ. So then he says this. Verse 15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule. So you know, a lot of individuals want to have peace. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But the way this is worded is different. Because it sounds like, and I think it's correct, that you have a lot to do with what's going on with this. It's telling you to allow something to happen that would imply something's already been given to you, or it's at least available, and that's the peace of Christ. You need to allow it to rule. Let the peace of Christ rule. So Christ gives peace, um, and it's not only a peace that we experience when there's no conflict, it is a peace that we can have even in the midst of conflict. It is a sense of wholeness. It's a sense of well-being. It's a sense of completeness. It's a sense of totality. So that's what this peace is that he's talking about. All right? So again, it's a sense of wholeness. Uh, it's a sense of well-being. It's a sense of, of, of completeness. Um, so the word rule that's used there says, let the, peace of, let the peace of Christ rule. The word rule in the Greek language here is what's called the present imperative. So it is a command, and God is calling for this to be our continual attitude. So remember that we are the ones who have control over our attitude. Right? You don't have much control over anything else, you know, but we have control over how we're going to respond. We have control over how we're going to, um, uh, the attitude that we're going to adopt um, as an individual. So if we rephrase the verse, listening to what the Greek language says, then it would be this. Let the peace of Christ continually decide like an umpire or an arbitrator in your hearts. So the idea then as a Christian that I'm carrying around this idea that Christ is always with me and that my view of things, the way that I'm going to understand life, the way that I'm going to approach life is always going to be through the lens of who Christ is or always through the lens of the Bible. This is never this idea that, you know, I just live life the best I can, and when it comes to the big things, I find out what the Bible says. We're supposed to be so saturated with the Bible, we become, we should be becoming more like what the Bible says we should be. Again, it's kind of like, um, so think about this. So let's say you have some friends. It doesn't matter where they're from, but let's just say they have very strong accents, whether they're from Alabama or they're from Rhode Island or wherever. When you meet their kids... Their kids sound just like them. Say, what, now, the kids didn't say, I want to make sure I talk just like mom and dad. It's just automatic. Because they are so in, they're so enmeshed in that family unit, and because of the constant conversation and how they communicate, it becomes a very natural thing. They don't have to think about it. So that's the idea here, is that our identity with Christ is so strong that as we continue to grow as Christians, that's why we need to keep reading the Bible and 
we, you know, we continue to renew our minds to what the Word of God says. So in a sense, we might even say it becomes second nature. All right, but maybe stronger than that. It becomes just a natural part of who I am. Uh, I've never noticed this, but sometimes if, um, you know, certain people may have a distinct kind of gait or walk, watch their kids. They walk just like them. Back one time I was, uh, I was with my, one of my grandsons, and we were going to Home Depot, and this was before I had uh, one of my knees replaced. He was limping. I said, Noah. I said, are you all right? He goes, yeah, Papa, why? I go, you're limping. And it's the exact same leg I use when I limp. And he just kind of smiled. And, and then he, he, I guess he became aware of it. He goes, well, that's how you walk. <laughs> you know, but it was just so hilarious. I just, that's just what he was doing. And, uh, and I will tell you, I did see this on Facebook. It was hilarious. There's this old grandfather who's with his uh, three-year-old grandson. And uh, no one knows that mom was behind the door filming. And grandpa gets up to go to the kitchen. And it, ugh, I mean, he's, and he's, he's just, he just can't help. He's just, you know, he's groaning. Everything's creaking. And he kind of, you know, he's kind of bent over. You can tell he's got back trouble. And he's kind of walking. And then about 10 seconds later, the little boy, three years old, and then he starts walking the exact same way. It was hilarious <laughs> to watch that. All right, so that's kind of the idea here when, when, he, when he's talking about to allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts and lives. That's why we should have this expectation as believers that our life will get better. Now, when I say get better, that doesn't necessarily mean your circumstances improve. It doesn't mean you're going to get a raise at work. It doesn't mean that if you're feuding with your neighbors, that'll stop. I mean, it'd be great if it does. But the bottom line is, is you become better. You become more content. You have a sense of completeness. And you are the one who's, who's choosing to have this attitude of allowing the, the peace of Christ to, in a sense, be the umpire of your life. Figuring out what is right, what is moral, and how you should respond. Some people think that when you, if you, when you talk that way, that if we have joy or respond in kindness, that somehow that's fake. Because you have to think about who Christ is, and then you're kind of acting out a part. Well, I guess you could look at it that way, but that's not what's going on. Christ is going to change your heart to where you want to do that. Right? And, and that will become more and more natural. But that doesn't mean it's fake. Because you're not trying to impress anybody. You're trying to be obedient to the Lord. That's who we look to. And so that's what he's trying to get at here. Uh, remember, again, that the, the pagan f view of religion, and it is also the main view of religion here in our country and throughout the world, and that is this. Religion doesn't have much to do with everyday living. You watch people. The, you know, um, the, 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 you say, well, I'm a Christian, and they may even think, what does that have to do with anything? Like I was talking to Cece, and she's talking about, uh, you know, she's a, a diabetic nurse, educator, etc., and they have to go to some new system, which is not fun for anybody. And so I guess a lot of her coworkers were having her like a really bad attitude about doing all this, which I understand they don't like it. But anyway, so she was just talking to the lady who's kind of the, the one who's, I guess, telling them all the things they have to do. And I don't know how all of it came up. But basically, in the course of the conversation, Cece told this lady that, well, the reason why I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do my best to have a good attitude and do what you say is because... That's, that's, I'm a Christian. That's what the Bible says. And the lady says, you're a Christian. What does that have to do with anything? Yeah, she goes, what, what, why do you bring that up for? Like she had, she literally believed 
that there's just no connection. And then, of course, she let out later that her dad was a Baptist minister, and that brings all kind of questions to my mind. But anyway, I don't know what she was exposed to or what he believed or what they taught or whatever, but something's up with that. But it has everything to do. And most of it, if you've been a Christian for at least a few years, you've heard that enough. It's kind of the uh, assumed position. But there are many individuals, especially in the day and age we live in, when people talk about spirituality, they, they don't think and they never, they never imagine that spirituality has anything to do with real life. It has to do with, it's just a part of your life. When I do these certain things, I feel spiritual. I feel like I'm communing with God or whatever. And it makes me feel better about myself. Then you go live your life and pretty much just go do whatever you want. And there's, just, there's no connection. Um, I think I told you before that one time when we had, uh, uh, it was a children's camp that we took a bunch of kids. Was, they were um, second, third, fourth, and fifth grade down to uh, St. Simon's Island. And we were staying at a, at a retreat there. So whenever the kids had crafts, I would go to the local Starbucks and sit and drink and read uh, for a couple of hours because I'm not going to go with crafts. they got plenty of people. And so, so I was wearing one of the camp T-shirts we had. And so this guy came over, and he was, he was older than I was. And, and I forget how the conversation started, but as we were talking, you know, he, he, said, he said, so what is this, this shirt thing? He said, some kind of camp. I said, oh, yeah. I said, we've got a bunch of little kids. And, you know, I talked about, you know, what we're doing. And. I could tell he was not happy, and he, and he kind of, I can't remember if he used the word brainwash, but he talked about, you know, he's just tired of all these, these groups teaching religious fanaticism to kids and whatever, and I, so I, I, said, I said, well, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah, you know, and I said, uh, I think he was looking for a fight, like an argument, not a fist fight, and uh, I said, so... You know, we teach the kids that, that they should be honest with everyone. I said, is that a, I mean, so you're against that? He goes, well, no, I'm not against that. I said, oh, I said, well, that's good. I said, well, we also teach them they should treat other people with kindness. Um, they should try to understand where people are coming from. Because sometimes someone can sound mean, uh, but maybe someone in their family has just recently died. And I kind of went through that. I said, are you, are you not against that, are you? He goes, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm not against that. And so then I talked about, you know, about feeding the poor and maybe helping the home. I kind of went through just a long list of things. And so I went through about seven things. And I said, so I'm trying to figure this out. Why is it you're against Christians having kids at camp? He said, well, well if they're doing what you're doing, I go, well, they all do that. I don't know where you get your information from. I said, but that's what they're doing. You know, I said, now, we also teach them that there is only one God. But... This one God has said, because everyone's made in his image, we should treat them with respect and kindness and do good. Here's why. Uh, well, uh, so you're saying everyone else is wrong. I said, well, I said, do you know what they teach? I said, do you know, I said, do you know what Muslims teach? I teach the same thing. I go, it's not even close. And so I told him a few things. He said, how do you know that? I said, well... I have a Quran. I've read it. <laughs> I read their stuff. And uh, he goes, whoa, well, okay, well. And then he kind of went through, he said, what about the Buddhists? They don't hurt nobody. I said, really? It was Buddhists that bombed Pearl Harbor. I said, I'm not sure I get the connection here that they don't do anything wrong. So we talked about a few more things. And finally, I think he had enough. And so, you know, he said he had to go. But, you know, but there's this mindset that's against what we do because people have this misconceived idea and they have a mindset that whatever religion you are it doesn't matter 
because it doesn't really connect with real life and they don't want it to. Because you know in the end, what they really are getting at is they don't want anyone else, which includes God, telling them how they should live their life. They don't want that. And I, I guess, I guess to a degree, I understand that to a degree, but I'm thinking, yeah, well, as I look through my life, I kind of need someone to tell me what to do because I do stuff on my own. That's not, I mean, I, I'll do better now, but that's because I know all this stuff in the Bible. Erase all of that, I don't think I'm making good decisions. In fact, I know that I wouldn't because I, I know what I, I remember myself when I was in high school or middle school or whatever and the, some of the dumb things I did. So we just have to realize that there's a lot of individuals out there that are against that idea. That's, that's, the, that's the, uh, the spirit of the age. That's another reason why then again, as we raise our children, we want to make sure we're covering these things with them, explaining why we do this, because the Bible tells us to do this, and this is why God tells us to do this, and that kind of thing. So this is what Paul is getting at, of course, when he's teaching adults and wanting us to understand, and perhaps... Uh, it's more than perhaps because God, remember, God knows all things, and He knew that in the 70s, pop psychology would begin to uh, make its make inroads into every facet of life, and so everybody wants to be a psychologist. You hear them do it all the time, and and psychology has a lot of interesting insights, but their solutions and the way they apply things is just way off base, and so this takes care of that um, because there are those who, you know, people who will say, uh, in fact, I heard it, I heard it, my wife was watching something. Some dating thing, doesn't matter what it was. But this lady was, was uh, talking about this relationship she had with her dad, didn't go well. And then she said, I've always had, I'm trying to think of the word now, a, a lying, oh, what was the word? <clears throat> Basically what she was trying to say was that, that she's always had this, she didn't, use, she didn't use the word disease, but this thing with lying. Like somehow it was something not a part of her, and that was, but it's part of her behavior. I'm like, no, because I talked to the TV. You're a stinking liar. You're lying to your dad because you didn't want him to tell you what to do, and so you just made stuff up. And just, <laughs> you were trying to be deceitful. That's what you were doing. All right? But people, but people get into all these things, and part of the reason they do that is to kind of escape and get out of responsibility. Uh, that's why there's all these new labels they keep coming up with uh, for just normal, kind, when I say normal, I'm not saying that it's normal in the sense of being good, but normal things that people do. Uh, in fact, uh, a lot of these things are introduced through courts when, when lawyers try to help their, their clients get off on things. And I've only remember, and I'm sure this has happened several times where a judge has thrown something out, but there was this one. This happened back in the late 90s, and there was a, a man who was living on the streets, and there was a young man who was going around and he was checking on people. He was a pre-med student and he was just going and, and checking on people who were sleeping in the alleys to see how they were doing, if they needed food, um, and he would, or if they, if they needed help, he was, you know, he was helping to open up a clinic that they were going to you know, help people serve people's needs and whatever. And so when he approached this man, this man just pulled a gun out and killed him, shot him. And uh, so when they went to court, his lawyer said that he suffers from a mental condition called urban jungle syndrome. And what urban jungle syndrome was, was because there are so many people, if you live on the street in the city, that are out to do you wrong and hurt you, it was normal for him to assume that anybody coming up to him meant him harm. And even though there was no real threat, it was a threatening situation, 
And so it was simply self-defense because he suffered from urban jungle syndrome. Well, the, the uh, prosecuting attorney said, Your Honor, I object. And the Honor instantly, the judge instantly slammed the hammer and said, sustained. And then he looked at, looked at the defense lawyer and said, we're not doing that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. All right. But the idea is, is to escape responsibility. So maybe you do live in a situation like that. We're human beings. We can think. There's an expectation that we should think. And therefore, just because you live in a dangerous area doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want because you have just imagined that everybody's out to get you. But, we, but we've grown accustomed to doing that, at least in certain cases. Um, just watch the news and you'll see that, except for people they don't like. Then all that's out the window. So, so again, as I said before, when it comes to the Bible, one of the things the Bible always makes clear is that regardless of our background and we regardless of what we've experienced, God holds us responsible for everything we do and everything we say. That there's a reason for that, right? There, there is no justifying excuse that excuses what we do. Now, is there such a thing as real self-defense? Yes, there is. Absolutely. Are we held responsible if we take the life of somebody if it's real self-defense? No, we're not. But you can't make stuff up. And so, uh, so whether we want to talk about addiction or what do you want to talk about, the bottom line is this is how God approaches. He's always informing us what we're really like and what he expects from us. And the most important thing to remember with, when it comes to these things, the expectation that God has on us as Christians, when he says for you and me to let the peace of Christ rule, God always gives us the ability for what he commands us to do. He doesn't just say, good luck. God has given every single believer the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God indwells us. The Spirit of God interacts with uh, our feeding on the Word of God, and God will give us the grace, His strength uh, that we need uh, to apply these things to our lives. I don't have an excuse other than my own sinful desires, my own sinful decisions or whatever, if I'm not applying the word of God, God holds us responsible. And we know, and God, but remember, God knows that you're going to blow it from time to time. God has forgiven us. God expects us to confess and to repent and seek his help so we can overcome. And there's this, there's a, there's a uh, expectation that we will be able to overcome, but God is also giving us the strength we need to overcome. And most of us, maybe all of us, the changes we've made in our lives is because the spirit of God is working in us we also are taking responsibility for ourselves, and as those things kind of work in conjunction with each other, thus we mature and, and we move ahead uh, as believers, and we become, uh, we, you know, we live a life that's more and more honoring to Jesus Christ. So this whole idea here of the attitude that you and I are to choose when it comes to the way we live life, again, is a command of God. This is not like a good suggestion, like, it is say, here's the top ten ways so you can have a happy life. This is a command for you and I to, to obey. So the way of application, the peace of Christ then should act as an umpire, as I mentioned, when, when anger, envy, or other passions arise in our hearts. That's the umpire, all right? He, the umpire is saying that's out of line, okay? You don't do that. Um, to let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your heart amidst the conflicts of life, 
This divine umpire helps us to decide what is right. I'll tell you something that a friend of mine did once with one of his kids, which I thought was interesting because it can really cause us to think about how we approach life. So one of his students, there was at dinner time, and one of the, the children didn't like what was being served. And they, she got an attitude. I mean, a, a, you know, a grumpy attitude. She wasn't going to eat, wasn't going to obey, you know, whatever. And so the, the dad said, well, you can have the, any attitude you want. That's what you're getting for dinner. And we're not changing. And so she began to uh, pout a little bit. And then he said this to her. He called her by her name and he said, be happy. And she looked at him and he said, be happy. Right now, you need to decide to be happy. Guess what happened? She obeyed her dad. Because that wasn't the first time he ever done that. A lot of you would never imagine that you would ever say that to a person, much less a kid. And it, it's not, and you don't say it because it works. You say that because that's, that's actually how we can function. You can choose to be happy. It's absolutely, it's an amazing thing uh, that we have that ability to choose to be anything. Just like, I don't know if you ever heard anyone do this, you know, where someone, someone you say, say, look, I know you're angry, and, and you need to calm down, and the person says, I want to be angry. Right? I've, I've heard that before. I've heard people say that, I want to be angry. There may be a lot of stuff going on, and getting it out makes it, they feel good, and so they want to be angry. It's just no different. You can choose to be angry, you can choose to be happy, you can choose to be whatever. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's like going over and just flipping on the, the light switch and bingo, it happens. But as we discipline ourselves with the help of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, those changes can come fairly rapidly. Um, and that becomes really very important so that you don't become overwhelmed by your own emotions. Again, it's not that you become a robot. It's not that you don't feel things like, you know, like so, so if someone in your family dies and you feel grief, you don't just after two hours say, self, stop grieving. That, this, that doesn't make any sense. That would, you would not even want to do that because you miss that individual. However, if, you're in the, if you have the habit of being disciplined even with your emotions, then even though you're experiencing grief, and that grief may last for a long time, it doesn't have to overwhelm you. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you now have to be so overwhelmed that you now make bad decisions. Right? That's, that's, not, that's not how human beings can function as Christians. I have seen this, usually it's with teenagers in the situations I've been in, where a friend of theirs ends up being killed, and of course this other teenager becomes very, very emotional. And so, let's just say it's a gang-related thing, because that's a very common thing. And so next thing you know, this person is instantly angry, they're in a rage, they don't care what anybody says, they don't care who's in their way, they're going to get a gun, and they're going to get them back. That's wrong. And there's people who say, oh, but you have to understand. They, that was their best friend, and, and they're so close to them, they can't help themselves. I disagree. They can't help themselves. Absolutely. They don't care about anyone else, or there's all kinds of things that go into that. But see, we live in a society that, that we, we tend to lean in that direction. And that gets us in trouble, and we are in trouble. Thank goodness it's not my phone. <laughs> I have that ring, that's for my son. Uh, I'm like, whoa! <laughs> but I've turned my phone off. Anyway. <laughs> All right, so again, 
So by way of application, the peace of Christ should act as our umpire. So when anger arises, envy, whatever happens to be these passions, uh, we are allowing uh, Christ to be the umpire of our heart in the midst of the conflicts to decide what is right, what our attitude should be, how we should respond, that type of thing. And, uh, of course, he tells us here in this, um, let me go back to, uh, to the verse, he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. So the spirit of thankfulness is to kind of, kind of go along with this overcoat of love that we have and then this attitude of allowing the peace of Christ to rule in us. God wants us to be thankful. And, it, and it, we should be because we should recognize that everything that we receive from God that is good literally is, it is undeserved. Remember, we have, we have lived in rebellion until we became believers. We have rebelled against God. We have uh, thought very little about God. Remember, everything really does come from Him. Everything does. Our next breath comes from God. Everything is from Him. The happiness that we experience now is from God. All these things are gifts from God to us. We've not done anything to deserve these things. None of us could even do anything to deserve these things. So this goodness, these good things that God gives us, there's an expectation then that we would be, in generally, generally we would be thankful. And of course, being thankful kind of crowds out a lot of these bad attitudes that can uh, kind of enter into our hearts and minds that can again lead us in the wrong direction. You know, and, and again, if you've ever known anyone who kind of habitually has a bad attitude, um, you know what kind of trouble they can get into. They seem to always have a bad attitude. One thing, one thing that I can tell you for sure about someone who has a bad attitude, they're not thankful people. You'll never find someone with a bad attitude who's thankful. They may have moments where they say thank you, but not a thankful person. Uh, God, and again, this is a command uh, to God for us to be thankful. And it makes a, makes a huge difference. Uh, I want to read to you, there's this, this uh, real quick story. I can't remember if I put in your notes or not, but it doesn't matter. Uh, a guy named Henry. Uh, Ma oh, Matthew Henry. I thought a lot of you guys have heard of him. These, you can... Uh, uh, you can um, probably get a hold of his commentaries on the internet. There are tons of websites have them, uh, and you can read his stuff. And it, his stuff is, it's what we call a devotional commentary. So it doesn't always get real in-depth, but it's always very good. It's insightful. So Matthew Henry uh, had been robbed once. Someone came up on the street and they robbed him. And so he was describing, this is what he said, let me be thankful. First, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although he took my purse, he did not take my life. Third, because although he took all I possessed, it wasn't much. Fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed others. Now, when he said that, he wasn't trying to be clever because he was speaking to an audience. He was being serious. That was, the, that was his attitude. It makes all the difference in the world. It absolutely does. Um, and so that's why then when we come back to this command, it's, it's one of those things that when, we, when you meditate on the Bible, just so you know, this is how, we're, how we should do it. When you meditate on the Bible, the idea of meditation, for Christian meditation, is that you, you take something you've read in the Bible and you just kind of just mull it over in your mind over and over and over again. So when it comes to this one here, this phrase in the Bible, which is, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So you just then spend the rest of the day thinking about it. What, what does that mean? How do I do that? Am I doing that? That's what you ask yourself. Am I doing this? Am I choosing to, to live my life where Christ really is the umpire 
of every, uh, uh, and deciding everything that, that comes in my life, how I react to it, how I respond, what I do. Am I really doing that? And so that's what meditation is. You think about that, maybe for a day or for two days or for the whole week, uh, and you go back and you reread that passage and think about it some more. That's what meditation is. That's what it means to be, that's what Christians do when they meditate on Scripture. That's what we do. Um, and that helps to kind of cement it into our minds. And the more that becomes cemented into our minds, uh, the more that becomes implanted in our hearts and begins to bring about fruit. So that's, the, so that's just the idea when, it, when, when we talk about meditating on Scripture. Um, that's the kind of way that's supposed to be done. So if you were to look at verses 16 and 17, Paul continues. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, uh, one, one old preacher said this. He said, the diligent and prayerful reading of God's holy word is a great means of increasing and promoting spirituality of the mind. So remember that, when, so you may not be aware of this, but when we talk about prayerfully reading the Bible, okay, that, that does not mean that you're in a mood of being reverent. Okay, that's not being in a spiritual mood. All right? Prayerfully reading the Bible means you're asking God to help you to both understand and to apply what it says. That's prayerful reading of the Bible. I want to do what this says. I want to treat other people according to whatever the, whatever it is that you're reading. That's the idea. That's the prayerful attitude. It's you're wanting this, this to become a part of your life, a part of your thinking. So it's not, again, a, a spiritual exercise where it generates certain kinds of feelings or a mood. Right? It's much more practical than that. You know, we live in a day and age where people keep thinking it's, you know, it's, ooh, you know I, I was always oh, praying and reading the Bible. And, and that's great to do all that. But in the end, if you do that on a regular basis, you should be more holy. That's what it means. Um, and if you're not, so if you're not treating your friends better, if you're not treating your, your enemies better, if you're not treating your parents better, if you're not treating your spouse better, then what are you doing? Right? You're not prayerfully reading the Word of God. So that's why... When it comes to reading the Bible or reading the Bible on a regular basis, again, remember some very simple things about that. Number one, it's not a race. It's not to see who can read through the Bible the fastest. Right? That, that's not profitable. There are some individuals who can read extremely quick, but we're not competing with them. Number two, if you only read a chapter a day, that's okay. You're going to be doing this for the rest of your life, so don't worry about it. The idea is, is to focus on what you're reading and you want it to become, a, you want to allow the Word of God, as it says here, to dwell in you. All right? And so, and so that's, that's what the point of this is, is for this book, it's a spiritual book. It feeds my soul. I want this to change who I am. And it will do that. It will help, it will make you a different individual. And that's what we want. We want to become more like Jesus Christ. So uh, here, this old guy who wrote this, so the diligent reading, that means that you make sure you do it no matter what on a daily basis. Prayer for reading, which is what I've just covered, of God's holy word is a great means. It's, it's, it's the, it's the uh, mechanism that God uses to increase and to promote spirituality of mind. Spirituality of mind is thinking like a Christian. It's thinking biblically. It's thinking like Christ. That's what that means. 
Uh, so I want to be spiritually minded. So spiritually minded doesn't mean you think about heaven all the time. So being spiritually minded is, is that you think about Christ. What would Christ do? What would Christ have me do? Uh, that's what it means to, to live as a Christian and to be spiritually minded. So here he tells us, so, so Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell. So the word dwell in verse 16 means basically to keep house. So the idea there is that we should live in the word of God in the same way you live in your home. When you live in your home, uh, you're, you're fully at home. You're relaxed. You do everything there. Everything that you, most things we do in life, we do in the context of our home. Right? This is the idea. Is for, the, is for the Word of God to dwell in your life in the same way you dwell at home. I'm there completely, I'm completely relaxed, I'm, I'm, I'm committed in that sense to, to living there. That's where my stuff is, that's where I sleep, that's where I normally eat. Everything is there, um, and that's the idea. So again, with our home, we're familiar where all the closets are. We know at least where most of the items are stored, unless we haven't looked for it for two years. Um, but we're thoroughly acquainted with our homes. This is natural because you're there every day. So the idea is to become more and more thoroughly acquainted with what the Bible says. So it is important to memorize Scripture. Some people can have a really hard time memorizing the Bible. Okay, the most, the most important thing is to know where stuff is in the Bible, to know where to turn. All right, so if someone says, you know, where Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, you recognize that as part of the Sermon on the Mount. But where is that? Well, that's in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Now, I don't know that because I'm smart. I know that because I've only read it hundreds of times throughout my life. I'm, I'm old, all right, so I've been doing this for a while. But that, that's what it is. We become more familiar, all right? When someone says, well, I got some questions on marriage. Well, I already know that one of the things I'm going to be doing is turn to 1 Corinthians 7, because that's where there's... That's where God, that's not the only place, but it's the main place that as believers we need to understand what's going on. Um, when people talk about, um, you know, well, they've been thinking about whether or not they're saved or being born again. Well, there's a lot of places in John we can go uh, when it comes to that. When someone's concerned about false teachers, we can go to 1 John or we can go to 2 Peter and it talks about that. So you just you become kind of familiar with what, what books are about. It doesn't mean that you know everything about the book, but you know generally what's going on. Again, this isn't a test. It's not like for you to go home and next week everyone's going to be tested and say, where's this and where's that? But as we continue to read, we pay attention, we learn where these things are. We become familiar where these things are, and it's important. Um, you know, so let, you know, if, if anyone's ever heard me talk or when I talk to other people, if I, especially when I'm talking to someone who has got questions about Christianity, most people know that a great deal of my understanding and the way I deal with you all comes from Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 18 through verse 32. I mean, I can, I can go there all the time and I can just go, to go through that word by word and, and explain that to individuals and help them understand either what they're thinking about or what's going on, whether I'm talking to a believer and, you know, how is it fair for God to send people in China who've never heard the Bible? How can God send them to hell? The answer is there. Um, why is it that people don't want to believe the Bible? Romans chapter 1. Uh, I mean, it just continues to go back there because all that truth that's packed in there and I've studied it so much, I'm very familiar with that. Um, I'm very familiar with the first 10 chapters of Genesis. That, that's, that is uh, foundational for a great deal of understanding about almost everything else in the Bible. Uh, it's very, very important. Uh, and so again, that's just through years and years of reading and studying. And so uh, that's why I, I'm convinced that many people, if they have made some attempt through their lives as believers to read the Bible 
and go to church and Bible study and pay attention, at least most of the time, you probably know a lot more than you think you do. Because a lot of people think, oh man, if I had to talk to somebody, I would just freeze. I don't know where nothing is. Well, that's normal when we're all of a sudden put on the spot, if we're not used to having to answer something quickly, for your mind to go blank. That happens to people all the time. But when you relax a little bit, you probably know a whole lot more than you think you do. If I was to ask you, if I was to turn to some what we would call very familiar passages, and I would say, can you tell me what this means? You might say, oh, I can't do that. No, you can. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, but you're the pastor, and you're going to make fun of me because I get it wrong. No, I, well, first of all, I will not make fun of you. I will not do that. Number two, you will probably do pretty good. You probably, and remember now, compared to the non-believer, you know a whole lot more than they do. You know how to think. You know how to think through the scripture. So stop trying to undersell yourself to get out of responsibility. Don't do that. You know more than you do. Approach the word of God with confidence and with an expectation that God is going to minister to your heart. He's going to feed you through his word. And that's what, that's what he means by this. So we must thoroughly acquaint ourselves with the word of God. And again, that's just a long process is what we're doing. Again, the words should become so familiar uh, that we know it like the back of our hand. Uh, again, that doesn't mean that you know it like the back of your hand in two years. Right? But you should know it better in two years than you know today. And ten years from now, you should know it a whole lot better. Right? It has nothing to do with bragging. It has nothing to do with, well, I don't want to brag. No one's asking you to brag. Do you know the Word of God better now than you did 10 years ago? I hope the answer is yes, because if it's wrong, we got some talking to do. All right? <laughs> Something's wrong with your life. All right? Uh, so, the, again, the idea is to let the Word of God dwell inside and live at home in our lives. Um, so, the Word of God needs to, it needs to kind of inhabit us. So, turn to James, James chapter 1. The book of James, James chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 21. Now, I'm going to read it to you from the Amplified, so you can still follow along with your Bibles, but you'll notice that, that there's a lot of things being added. Uh, and remember, so when it comes to different translations, they all have different purposes or reasons why they, why they come into existence. So the Amplified is a pretty good way to help you study the Bible. It's not perfect, okay, it's, 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 a, it's a tool of man, but... The goal of the Amplified is to do exactly what it says, to amplify what the verse is saying. So sometimes it'll take a word and it adds two or three to make sure we get the, the gist of what's being said, especially if it's a word that can be, that can have uh, more than one nuance. And, and th that word is chosen on purpose because the, the author, which is oftentimes Paul, means all of those things. So don't allow that to throw you off. Um, if, and if you want to, you can, you can read the Amplified Version on the internet, so you don't have to go buy it. If you do want to buy the Amplified Version, I would advise you to get it hardback. So it's a book in your library. And if you want to see, you can always pull it out. It'll last longer. It sits on the shelf better. Um, but it can be a good aid. So I'm going to read this to you in the Amplified, but follow along as best you can. So verse 21 of James 1. So get rid of all uncleanness and the rampant outgrowth of wickedness, and in a humble, gentle, modest spirit, receive and welcome the word which is implanted and rooted in your hearts and contains the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word. Obey the message and not merely be a listener to it, betraying yourself into deception by reasoning contrary to the truth. 
For, for if anyone only listens to the word without obeying it and being a doer of it, he is like a man who looks carefully at his own natural face in a mirror. For he thoughtfully observes himself and then goes off and promptly forgets what he was like. But he who looks carefully into the faultless law, the law of liberty, and is faithful to it and perseveres in looking into it, being not a heedless listener who forgets, but an active doer who obeys, he shall be blessed in his doing, his life of obedience. So James 1, I think, makes real clear and is a good commentary on what Paul is saying here in Colossians. So James, in the same way, he's addressing these believers, uh, the believers that James is writing to, they, there's, been some lot, there's been a lot of difficulty, there's been some conflict, there's people in sin, and so he's, been trying, he's going to try to help them out. So that's why he says to get rid of the uncleanness and the rampant outgrowth of wickedness. In other words, there's been this outgrowth of wicked, wicked, wicked attitudes towards each other, you know, that kind of thing. And he says, you need, you need to get rid of those things. And he says, and you need to receive the word of God. How? Well, in a humble and gentle, modest spirit. So you need to be humble when it comes to the word of God, because the word of God has a lot of imperatives. God is commanding us to do things. If you have an attitude and, you know, that no one's going to tell me what to do, then you're not going to get much out of your Bible. God is not telling us what to do or commanding us because he's mean. It's not because he wants to be the boss, even though he is. Um, he's not trying to control your life so your life is miserable. All right, he wants your life. He wants your life to flourish. He wants your life to flourish physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. That, God really wants that for us. In the same way you want those things for your kids or your grandkids. Even if they mess up and disobey, even if they're a terror, what do you want from them? I want their life to flourish. And whatever path they're on, that is not how it's going to happen. All right, so that's what God is doing here with this. So we need to welcome the Word of God. And then he says it's implanted and rooted in our hearts because it has the power to save our soul. So again, the idea when you become a believer, you've submitted yourself to the Word of God. You've submitted yourself to what it says. We've submitted ourselves to Christ. The Spirit of Christ comes and enters into us. We're now a believer. Uh, we now approach the Scripture in a completely different way because we're now different people um, in that way. But then he reminds us that it's not just about reading. So this is not about the spiritual discipline of just reading the Bible and magically things happen. Right? That goes back to what I mentioned before about prayerfully reading the Bible. The idea is that I, I want to obey it. I, I, that's, that's, that's what it's about. Do what it says um, and things will be better. So be doers of the word or obey the message, not merely a listener to it. And just so you know, there are many, many people, in, in, especially in our country, that have gone to church for years. And they have heard the word of God, and they've never bothered to apply it. And I know that for a fact in some real detailed situations, because I know their kids. And I've talked to their kids. And you find out from the kids what does or doesn't happen at home. And not that everything's going to be perfect at home, but you find out. You know, when you, hear, when you have kids who, when they're teenagers, say, you know, I've never seen my parents ever open their Bible except in church. Or you hear, yeah, I've never, in fact, I've had several young men tell me through the years, they never heard their dad pray, not even once. Never heard him pray. Man, that's, there's, there's some problems there. I read a book once, it's called Freakonomics. It's actually a pretty good book. It was not Christian. But there's a statement that was made in there. It was a psychological study. Sometimes you can get some good things out of it. But it was talking about the kind of, the different ways we can influence our kids and what's the most powerful. So they were talking about reading and having a love for reading uh, and how is the best way to instill that in your kids. 
which I think would be important. And so they said the common thinking is that one of the best ways to introduce your kids to reading is to read to them when you're young. And there is some truth to that. But that's not the most effective. Amazingly, the most effective way to get your kids to love reading is for them to see you reading. Because in the beginning, who do kids want to mimic? Who do they mimic? Mom and dad. So what happens is this. So let's think of this in terms of the Christian. So if you read Bible stories to your, to your kids when you're young, that's a good thing. I think you should do that. But if you read them Bible stories when you're young, and then eventually you stop, you know, you know what you're teaching them? Bible stories are only for children. They're not for adults. So you see, what we end up doing is dishonoring the Word of God. Well, you didn't intend to, but that can be the message. Number two, if they never see you read the Word of God for yourself, what are you saying? I don't need the Word of God. When you become an adult, you don't need it. So I understand that normally we don't want to parade the fact, you know, you know it's not when your kids get up in the morning and go, hey, brush your teeth while I'm reading the Bible. You know, you don't have to go through all of that. Okay? But the idea is, is you do... You do, in the same way that they know you watch TV, you want them to know that you read the Bible. That's it. Just a very normal, casual thing. You don't have to do it every day. It doesn't mean you have to make sure every day, you know, you make sure you put a spotlight on that. I'm not talking about being fake about it. But the problem is, is that this has been a lot of kids who've just never seen their parents do it because their parents don't do it. And so being an example really goes much further. So I'm not saying don't read to your kids. But if you, but if you had to choose the two, between the two. The most effective is they see you read the Bible more so than you reading it to them. So I would just say do both and you're going to be better off for it. Um, but that's kind of the idea here. We want to be doers of the word of God. We want to obey the message, not just a listener to what it says. Um, if we only listen to it, he says here that you betray yourself. In other words, you enter into deception because you're reasoning contrary to the truth. So what's he getting at there? I think what he's getting at there is you betray yourself because you begin to think that you're spiritual when you're not. All right? Because you're hearing the Bible. Some people have said, oh, when I hear the Bible read, I just feel so much better. Now, that's nothing wrong with that. But for some people, that's the only reason, that's the only reason they listen. They, it's, it's a psychological calming effect. Okay, the Bible is a lot more than that. That's, that's, that's not what it's for. Imagine if, if a husband and wife were, they were celebrating 20 years of marriage and they're having dinner and the man says to his wife, you know the most important thing that I've noticed about our marriage? Your voice is so calming to me. I just really like to hear you say, I don't really care what you say. I don't even listen to it. But when I hear your voice, it just really calms me down and I feel better about myself. <laughs> You may not have another 20 if that's what you say to your wife, okay? So when it comes to the Bible, it's okay if it has a calming effect on you. But that's not why we're reading it, right? That may be, that may be some of it. You may say, oh, I need to calm down. I need to read the Psalms. And that's not a bad thing. But pay attention to what the Psalms are saying. That's the point. Um, so we don't want to allow ourselves to get into a situation where we are betraying ourselves. We will stop there. And we will work our way through verses 23 to the end and then get back into Colossians so we can have a really good handle on what it is that God wants. Because what I want us to understand is that the Christian life, there's a lot of information here on, on, the, on a really good way for us to develop a Christian life. And it's what all of us can have. It's not reserved for only a few people.
that every single person is expected to live this way. God is not asking us to be something that we can't do or that we can't be. And this is definitely so that we can flourish. Again, not just spiritually, because the Bible does have a, a tremendous effect on who we are. And it will have a great effect on us mentally, a great effect on us emotionally. Uh, and when it comes to the society we live on, all the problems people have, I think they could use a whole lot more uh, of mental and emotional maturity um, when it comes to approaching life, thinking through life, and the way that we make decisions. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, as always, we are grateful for your word, and we ask now, Lord, that those things that we've heard tonight, the things that we've read, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to remind us of these things, and that we may think on them. That, Father, that our lives may be deeply affected by your word and what it says. That all of us, Father, together, may continue to grow as Christians and become more like Christ. That, Father, our lives, that we may flourish. And that, Father, we may have deep and lasting joy. We ask now, Lord, that you would keep us safe as we're dismissed and as we go home. As always, we thank you, Lord, again for, uh, again, your great patience with us and your work in our lives. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.